people, let me open with a word of prayer. Seems like I'm a little loud, but we'll just press on. All right, let's pray. Great God, we thank you that you are the Lord of history, and you will build your church. You will not allow the gates of Hades to prevail against it, and your gospel will go out, and you will bring all your sheep in. Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be instructed as we look at how certain things came about in the past, and also those faithful leaders you raised up to shepherd your people uh, for a certain period of time. Pray that you bless this lesson in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, like I previewed for you last week, we are turning today from learning from uh, learning about the great movements and events of the early church to, more specifically, learning about people in the early church, specifically the early church's notable leaders, teachers, writers. They're often called the church fathers. So we're going to learn about these people. These are our spiritual forefathers who have left us a legacy. And a lot of that legacy is good, but not all of it. Nevertheless, we've inherited it. And as we look at some of these leaders, these fathers, over the next few weeks, we are going to understand origins more. Remember, we talked about that in the first class, why study church history. We want to understand origins, we want to receive encouragement, and we also want to take warning. And that is what we are going to find. Some of the things that we've inherited from our early forefathers are actually not so helpful. But let's learn. At this earliest group that we're going to look at is in the first century, and they are known as the Apostolic Fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that these are the apostles. Rather, these are the ones who are the next generation after the apostles. They, some of them lived at the same time as certain apostles, at least the apostle John. So they could have even been discipled by the apostles, but they overlap with the apostles, and they form the next generation of leaders and teachers in the church. So we're going to learn about the apostolic fathers. This would be the people in the late first, early second centuries. But before we get there, I do want to wrap up one topic, one loose end, and that is the canon of the Bible. How is it that we received the Bible that we have today in terms of its specific collection of books? Why these 66 books, and not any more, and not any less? How do we know these are the right ones? Well, if you were paying close attention to last week's lesson on the seven ecumenical church councils, which of those councils was responsible for setting which books belong in the Bible? We might think it was the Nicene Council, but I didn't actually say that last week because it wasn't the Council of Nicaea. In fact, it wasn't any of the councils. None of the ecumenical church councils were called to determine which books were part of the Bible. In fact, though we might think of like uh, that, not talking about that kind of canon, this is canon with one N, and it refers to a recognized set, standard, or collection. And there are many different types of canons in the word, world with one N. Sometimes people talk about a certain writer's literary canon or a certain artist's canon of works, but as Christians, we are most concerned about the biblical canon. What constitutes the set of the Bible? And how do we know that the books that have come to make up our Bible are really God's intended set? How do we know that there's no book in there that shouldn't be in there? Or how do we know that there's no book missing that should be in there? Now, there's a lot I could say in terms of how we got the Bible and how God's intended canon was recognized, but for the sake of time, I wanted to give you the quick version. The issue of the Bible's canonicity is well summed, sum, well, well summed up by Dr. Nathan Busnitz, who is my professor at the Master's Seminary, and he's still there. He says this in his historical theology class, The reason we believe in the canon, the authority of the 66 books of the Bible, is because Jesus himself confirmed and authorized the canon. He authorized the scriptures. I'll say that again. You see a version of it on this slide. We believe in the authority of the canonical biblical text because the highest authority himself, Jesus, 
confirmed and authorized the scriptures. Why do we believe in these 66 books? Because Jesus confirmed and authorized it. There is no authority above Jesus because he's God. So what he says about the Bible is completely authoritative and trustworthy. And he affirms, he shows us what is the Old and New Testaments. How so? Well, let me tell you. The affirmation of the Old Testament part of the canon is pretty straightforward. Jesus affirmed it in his own lifetime. The Jews recognized 39 books of the Old Testament as being scripture. They did not include any intertestamental or apocryphal works as being canonical, as being God's word. And Jesus affirmed this same set when he lived on the earth. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would quote from the Old Testament, and he affirmed the facts given in the Old Testament books, the 39 that we have. He quotes extensively from the law, the Psalms, the prophets. It even refers to details contained in the historical books as facts. Queen of the South coming to visit Solomon, or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus affirms these things. And he would never confront the religious leaders about using the wrong texts as scripture. Rather, he confronted them about misinterpreting the scripture, disobeying the scripture, or using their tradition to supersede the scripture. But he never rebuked them for using the wrong scriptures. Furthermore, Jesus confirms the authority and the inerrancy of these Old Testament scriptures. In Matthew 5, 17 to 18, for instance, Jesus affirms that all prophecy in the Old Testament is true and must be fulfilled. Not a jot or tittle is going to pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. The prophecies are true, and the requirements of the law must be fulfilled, which, of course, he would do in himself for all those who believe in him. Jesus also says in John 10, verses 34 to 36, that the scripture, he uses that term, and by implication, he's referring to the set of scriptures that the Jews had recognized in that day, the 39 books. He says, scripture cannot be broken. which is to say that what is written in these books, these specific books, is perfectly accurate and consistent in itself, which, of course, is only appropriate if it really is God's word, which it is. It's authoritative, it's accurate, it's trustworthy. So because Jesus confirms the Old Testament as canonical, so do we, because we believe in Jesus and he is our Lord. All right, we got the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Jesus ascended to heaven before he could confirm the 27 books in the New Testament, right? So how do we know that what we call the New Testament is correctly canonical as well? Well, the second part of the statement I mentioned before, Jesus authorized the New Testament and therefore confirms it also as being God's word and canonical. In what way did Jesus authorize the New Testament? Well, in this way. When he told the apostles that they would be the ones enabled and responsible to communicate the new revelation of Jesus Christ to the world. After all, if you were here last week and heard the exposition of John 1, 1 1-18, we saw that Jesus is the final and the supreme revelation of God. He brings grace and truth in its fullness. He explains the Father. He unveils the gospel mystery. Whatever Jesus says, obviously, is, as he is God, it is obviously authoritative. What the apostles give to us is really just the word of Jesus. If Jesus' word is authoritative, then when the apostles pass it on to us, it also is authoritative. It also is God's word. It also is scripture. But someone might ask, wait, didn't the apostles say and write things that Jesus himself didn't specifically say? Well, yes, but this is because Jesus uniquely commissioned the apostles not just to pass on what they themselves heard, but to also further explain his revelation. And this is given to us explicitly in the Bible. Remember that Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verses 25 to 26, John 14, verses 25 to 26, that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and supernaturally bring it to their remembrance, all the things that Jesus had taught them. 
And Jesus even goes further in John 16, verses 12 to 14. John 16, 12 to 14. He declares that he has more things to tell the apostles, but they're not ready for it. So the Holy Spirit instead would come and guide them into all truth, Jesus says, by disclosing to them what belongs to Jesus. He's going to take the revelation that belongs to Jesus and he's going to disclose it to the apostles so they can teach it to Jesus' followers. They can pass it on. So what does this all mean? It means that the incarnate word of God declares the final revelation of God, but that he commissions, he authorizes the apostles to further declare, write down, and cause to be written his final revelation, which is what we have now in the New Testament. Thus, it's not just the Old Testament that is canonical. It's also what's written by God's specially, specially commissioned representatives, the apostles, in the New Testament. And this became, this was, the mindset of early Christians in the church. When it came to recognizing what's the thing that we need to hold on to, what's authoritative, what do we need to uh, revere and pass down as Scripture, they're asking one main question. Did this come from an apostle? Did it come from one of Christ's officially commissioned representatives? Because if it is, we need to hold on to it. Therefore, as soon as the original New Testament documents were written and received, the various letters, the early church kept and copied these documents, disseminated them as they made more converts and moved different places, and throughout the Christian communities, what was gradually assembled was the 27 books of New Testament Scripture. They copied it, they disseminated it, Certain books emerged in certain places, but then they got shared. And probably by the middle of the second century, Christian communities, various Christian communities have copies of all 27 books of the Bible. Probably even by the end of the first century, or maybe by the end of the first century, certainly by the middle of the second century. Now, it did take time, though, to sift through the different documents that were available and that were even presented as Scripture and apostolic. Because, if you've read the Bible at all, you might have noticed that in the New Testament, there are references to those who wrote in the apostles' name who weren't really the apostles. They sent fake letters, pretended to be the apostles in their writing. And we do have some of those that have survived today. Works that claim to be apostolic but aren't, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Acts of Peter, some of these works were available, being disseminated in the early church. They had to be kind of weeded out. Oh, this isn't really from the apostles. And it's also true that some early church leaders, some communities temporarily affirmed certain Christian works as being scripture, which actually weren't. Works like the Epistle of Barnabas or the Didache. These were considered scripture for a short time. But that designation didn't last. Eventually, people were like, no, actually, I don't think this is Scripture. Or maybe that community held on to it, but everybody else was like, no, it's helpful, but it's not Scripture. So there was temporary affirmation of certain, work, certain works as not being a Scripture, and maybe there was temporarily people saying, eh, I'm not sure if that's Scripture. I'm not sure if the book of Revelation is Scripture. I'm not sure if Second Peter is Scripture. There was some of that temporarily in different places, but... As the different church leaders, as different early church fathers considered the available documents and the evidence for apostolic authorship, they gradually came to affirm the 27 books, just the 27 books of the New Testament as apostolic and scripture. And what were they using as, oops, sorry, I missed that slide. What were they using as their main criteria for assessing each document? Basically, three. Three things they're looking for. The first and most important question they're looking to answer was, was it written by an apostle or someone under an apostle's oversight? Does the letter actually claim apostolic authorship or imply apostolic authorship? Is there evidence of apostolic teaching in the work? 
And is there affirmation from any early witnesses outside of that document that it was written by an apostle? So they're looking first and foremost, was this written by an apostle or an apostolic associate? Second, does it fit with what's already recognized as Scripture, especially the Old Testament? Because if they say, oh, yep, this is from the Apostle Paul, but it's like, that totally contradicts what's written in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't think that's apostolic. And finally, is there general consensus in the church that this really did come from the apostles? Now, I've got to be careful with that last one. This does not mean that people are being democratic. This means being like, you want to include this in Scripture? This wasn't choosing what they wanted to be the Bible. This is all about recognizing what God had actually determined the Bible to be. They were not trying to just find whatever suited them. They're trying to say, what actually is God's word? We want to recognize it as such. Different Christian leaders are independently using their analytical abilities on different documents, letters, to assess apostolic authorship. And as they did this, Let's say you're trying to look at the epistle of Barnabas, and you're like, hey, you know, is this really scripture? Hmm, I read it. I'm not really quite sure. What does everybody else say? Ooh, a lot of people don't think this is scripture. It's a bad sign. But if a lot of people are recognizing this scripture, that's a good sign. Now, it doesn't mean it automatically is, but when you're trying to make a decision and you're using these other two criteria, this third one kind of helps you determine it a little bit it's a strong reason to reject, if, if the community, the, the wider Christian community, sees a strong reasons to reject the book as apostolic, and that's not a good sign for the book. So anyways, they're using these three main criteria, and that's how they eventually come down to uh, weed out the wrong works and put in the right works, and we get the 27 books in the New Testament that we have today. And if you just look at those 27 books, you can see that they all do come from one apostle or another, either directly written by an apostle or written by a companion of an apostle under his oversight. And if you just scan that list I've, I've just put on the slide there, you may notice a few interesting things. You may be surprised by James and Jude because the apostolic authority for those letters does not reside with one of the 12, one of the original 12. James, the brother of Jesus, he's actually called an apostle in the Bible. Galatians 1.19, he was recognized as an apostle and as a central leader of the Christian church. And so he writes the book of James, and he most likely was responsible for oversight of the book of Jude. You also notice, of course, many of the books, I think even most of the books, are written by another apostle who wasn't part of the original 12, Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Even though he wasn't one of the original 12, he's certainly called an apostle in the Bible. And then we have Hebrews. Hebrews is interesting because even today, we don't know who the author is for sure. And the early church really wrestled with that book. But what they determined from their you know, various people analyzing the book is that it must have been written by Paul or a Pauline associate because it's so Pauline in its explanation of theology. So they said, even though we're not entirely sure, we know this is apostolic, probably from Paul or maybe an associate. Now, as I said, most, if not all, the scriptures were recognized by the second century, early second century, mid-second century, so the 100s period. Much later, we do get certain published lists of the Bible, of what's recognized as scripture. Athanasius in the fourth century will give us a list of all the New Testament books as being canonical. You have other lists in the 4th century and in the 5th century. So certainly it was very obvious at that time, but it would have been recognized even much earlier. So even though there weren't published lists, there's no council saying, hey, these are the books. It was being recognized by different Christian authors. They were using these works. They were considering them as scripture. So by the 2nd century, we have the New Testament canon recognized. Like I said, there's still maybe pockets of uncertainty or debate, but generally the scriptures, the canon of the New Testament is recognized by the second century. And of course, we use the same one today. Now perhaps though you're listening to all this or someone might listen to all this and say, wait a second, isn't this circular reasoning? You say you believe in the biblical canon, Old Testament, New Testament, because Jesus authorized confirmed and authorized it, but Jesus is talked about in your canon. 
You only believe that because he says it in the canon. Isn't that circular reasoning? How can you do that? Well, yes, we admit that in this case, we are engaging in a bit of presuppositional reasoning. But you know what? Everyone does this. All of us, to understand the world, to think, we must reason according to certain basic unprovable assumptions, also called presuppositions. Yet Christian presuppositions are assumptions, are the only ones really in the world that are consistent with themselves and that also make good sense of what we see in the world. So I don't feel bad about this starting place. In the end, what do the scriptures themselves declare? We believe the Bible because God has opened our eyes to the Bible, to himself through the Bible. We can't help but recognize that everything that's written in these works, what the apostles declared, what Jesus declared, what the prophets declared, what they say about us and what they say about the world is true. And if we don't recognize that, the Bible says it's because we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But if we do recognize that, it's God. It's God opening our eyes to it. There is, of course, many good reasons to believe in the Bible and in its canonicity from a human perspective, but really, it's God's Spirit, ultimately, that gives us confidence in these 66 books. And that itself is not, to our credit, it's God's gift. So, yes, there's a process that brought this about, but ultimately, we know that these are the books of the Bible because God's Spirit shows us. He makes it clear in our hearts. Now, there's much more I could say about how we got the Bible and canonicity, but we're going to have to leave that there so that we can get to our second topic today. That's the canon. Let's now turn over to the fathers. Some of the early witnesses to the apostles and even their scriptures, what they wrote, are the apostolic fathers. We're going to meet four of these men specifically, and then we're going to look at, we're going to meet some of them anonymously just by what they wrote to learn about these men and their legacies. And we're going to start with Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome, I mentioned him in the first Sunday school class. He was a bishop or pastor in Rome, apparently installed by Peter. Roman Catholics identify Clement as one of their popes. Okay. Clement actually might be mentioned in the Bible. There is a Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3, who's called a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul in the cause of the gospel. This could be that Clement. Might not be. But this was a brother who was pastoring in Rome, and when it came to his death, the tradition in the Roman Catholic Church is that Clement was exiled, like the Apostle John, but he was later martyred by being tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. You can see kind of a medieval painting of that. A medieval renaissance. Not exactly sure. That may be true. We don't know for certain. He was certainly a faithful pastor. And we do have one surviving document from this Clement. It's his letter to the Corinthians that we call today First Clement. There's also a second letter falsely ascribed to him known as Second Clement. He didn't actually write that. Now, Clement's writing reflects a strong influence of the Apostle Paul. And his great legacy for us, if we want to identify, oh, what's one thing we should know him for? Well, it's for explaining clearly what salvation is and means for the Christian. What is salvation, Clement tells us. It is justification by faith that produces good works, demonstrating faith and repentance. This, of course, was not a new idea, but it's a beautiful affirmation of what the Bible teaches, especially What James says, on the one hand, faith without what is dead? Faith without works is dead. And what the Apostle Paul said, who told the Galatians and many others, you are justified by faith. And Clement's letter is the oldest surviving church history history document we have. It comes from the late first century. It's encouraging that we have this document because it's proof that God provided another faithful leader to lead a local church after the apostles are passing away from the scene, as the apostles are passing away. Another faithful leader to uphold the true gospel. So let's hear a little bit from this letter, 1 Clement, probably written in the 90s, as I said, which means whose persecution is in the background? 
Emperor Domitian. He's the same one under which the Apostle John would be writing. Clement writes this letter partly because division is again a problem in the Corinthian church. And here's an excerpt from that letter, from chapter 30. Clement writes, Let us therefore cling unto those to whom grace is given from God. Let us clothe ourselves in concord, being lowly-minded and temperate, holding ourselves aloof from all backbiting and evil speaking, being justified by works and not by words. Now just from that excerpt, you can see Clement's line of reasoning. He says, you will show the grace of God is indeed in you for salvation by doing what to one another? Yeah, being gracious to one another, being at concord, being at peace with one another. That's how you know that you really belong to God, that his grace is working in you. But you might hear that say, justified by works, what? Don't worry. Clement's going to make sure his listeners don't think that works produce salvation because just a little bit later on in his letter, chapter 32, he says, They, referring to Abraham and the patriarchs, all therefore were glorified and magnified, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doings which they wrought, but through his will, through God's will. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our wisdom, or through our own wisdom, or understanding, or piety, or works, which we wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's pretty clear, right? That's just what the apostles said. We're not justified or saved by our good works or pious heart, but by faith from God. It's just by his gracious will and all to his glory. That teaching wasn't lost. It was passed right on to the next generation. And this from one of the Catholic popes, right? Roman Catholic popes. He provides a good summary in chapter 34 of his letter of the whole concept. He, God, exhorts us, therefore, to believe on him with our whole hearts, and not to be idle nor careless unto every good work. That's salvation. This is the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord to be saved, and then let that belief and repentance, that true belief and repentance, show up in good works of obedience in your life. Another way to refer to that is lordship salvation. Don't say you believe in the Lord and then don't walk obediently. It was being taught in the first century faithfully, as the apostles taught. So when you think about Clement, Clement of Rome, think of his clear teaching on what is really the gospel and even lordship salvation. But we're moving on. Our next apostolic father is Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch. Two possible dates for his life. He's martyred under one emperor or another. You can see them on the slide. Who was Ignatius? I mentioned him before. Ignatius was a pastor in Antioch, Syria, who was apparently discipled by the Apostle John. He was also Polycarp's friend. Like Clement, or as best as we can tell about Clement, Ignatius died as a martyr. But there's something notable about Ignatius' martyrdom. Ignatius, he had been accused by somebody before the court, condemned to die because he was a Christian, and condemned to die specifically by beasts in Rome. He lived in Syria, but they say, hey, we've got this festival going on in Rome soon. Let's bring him there so we can die for the entertainment of a whole bunch of people. He's going to be put to death by beasts. On the way, though, he wrote seven letters, six to Christian churches, one to his friend Polycarp. And he was permitted to write these letters, have Christians take them to these various places, and those letters have survived. You can still read them today. In these letters, Ignatius gives various encouragements for believers to follow the Lord and ultimately to rejoice in Jesus he said, your joy is in Jesus. Keep following Jesus. But one thing he made clear in his letters that's a little surprising, and this appears in his letter to the Romans specifically, is that Ignatius didn't want to be saved from the wild beasts. He didn't want anyone to prevent his martyrdom. Let's hear a little bit of Ignatius in his letter to the Romans. I write to the churches and impress on them all 
that I shall willingly die for God. Unless ye hinder me, I beseech of you not to show an unseasonable good will towards me. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts, through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the weed of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Interesting. He's like, you might have the chance to save my life. Don't do it. Let me be martyred. And we can argue about whether that's really a biblical mindset or not, but if we look here and if we look at the other parts of this letter to the Romans, we can find out why specifically he didn't want to be saved. Ignatius saw his martyrdom not only as a way to testify to the world in a powerful way about the treasure of Christ, but also as an act of worship in which he would imitate his Lord and go to be with his Lord. He actually writes shortly after this quotation that I gave to you in the letter to the Romans, Now, in my martyrdom, I am beginning to be a disciple. So, Ignatius is certainly notable for his legacy of joy in Christ, even to the point of martyrdom. But Ignatius has another legacy, which is more problematic, and that is his exhortation to monopiscopacy. Monopiscopacy. Can anybody tell me what that means? Yes. Leader by one bishop or one pastor in the church. Just one. This is an extremely significant development since the popularization of this concept of monopiscopacy, it would affect the Christian church for centuries. In some ways, it still affects the church today. Listen to what Ignatius wrote to the Magnesians. This is one of his seven letters. Two paragraphs here. Since therefore I have, in the persons before mentioned, beheld the whole multitude of you in faith and love, I exhort you to study to do all things with a divine harmony, while your bishop presides in the place of God and your presbyters in the place of the assembly of the apostles, along with your deacons, who are most dear to me and are entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father before the beginning of time and in the end was revealed. Do ye all then, imitating the same divine conduct, pay respect to one another, and let no one look upon his neighbor after the flesh, but do ye continually love each other in Jesus Christ? Let nothing exist among you that may divide you, but be ye united with your bishop and those that preside over you as a type and evidence of your immortality. Okay, let's make sure we understand this. From these two paragraphs, you may notice Ignatius presents a trifold distinction of church offices. Which three offices does Ignatius assert as existing in Christ's church? Bishop, presbyter, and deacon. Now, if you're confused about the terms bishop and presbyter, they actually both come from the Bible. Bishop, you even see this in some translations of the Bible today. Bishop is the translation of the Greek word episkopos, which is usually translated overseer or bishop. And presbyter is from the Greek word presbuteros, which is usually translated as elder. Now, what's the difference, according to the New Testament, between an overseer, a bishop, and an elder, a presbyteros? They are essentially the same. Those two terms have different emphases, but they are actually describing the same office. They are used interchangeably. That We see this in the book of Acts. We see this in 1 Timothy. A bishop and a presbyter are essentially the same. An overseer and elder are essentially the same. But in the apostolic fathers, in Ignatius, and others who would come after him, they begin to use these two terms, bishop and presbyter, episcopos and presbyter, in a new way. If, you, if we go back to the first paragraph here, according to Ignatius, what is the difference between an overseer and an elder, or a bishop and a presbyteros? Uh, 
Yeah, he says the bishop's in the place of God, which means what's the bishop's relationship to the, uh, uh, the presbyters? He's above them. I mean, the analogy is pretty striking. The bishop's in the place of God. The presbyters are in the place of the apostles. So the bishop is really the leader above the other leaders. Now, there is some historical precedent for this concept, even by the end of the first century. In the Jewish synagogues, for instance, there was a plurality of leadership, elders, and yet there was also a leader among the elders who would sometimes be called the president of the synagogue or even the leader of the synagogue. We hear that term in the book of Acts. Early Christians seem to have adopted a similar leadership structure for the church. Even today, we have churches that have a pastor and then elders, or a senior pastor, lead pastor, and then associate pastor, assistant pastor, and elders. Here's a bit of a loaded question. Is it wrong to have a lead pastor or a lead elder in a church? It is if that leader is not subject to the other leaders. In one sense, to have a first among equals, a leader among leaders, is actually kind of natural. You need a spokesman, you need somebody to set the discussion. But if such a thing is to exist in God's church, this main pastor, this main leader, he cannot dominate the other pastors or elders. He must be subject to them, or else it is not really a plurality. And it's not really biblical leadership. It's just leadership by one. The Bible does clearly teach a plurality of leaders, elders in the church. No person is to have final authority. Even if you have a senior pastor, he has to be subject to the other pastors and elders. But coming back to Ignatius here, we see his analogy. The bishop is like Christ. The presbyters are like apostles. So should the presbyters ever overrule the bishop? Not according to this analogy. The bishop has the final authority. Now perhaps we're missing some context here, and the people understood that you're not to follow your bishop unquestioningly, the other elders are not to just submit to him unquestioningly. But we certainly hear in this kind of exhortation a foundation being laid in which ultimate authority in each local church rests not with a plurality of elders, but with one man, the leader of the elders, the bishop. And paying attention to these two paragraphs, why? What's the main reason that Ignatius exhorts this leadership structure? Well, well, that would be a biblical understanding, but that's actually not what Ignatius says here. Why should you all unite around your bishop rather than the plurality of leadership in the church, according to Ignatius? What is he seeking? Unity. Peace. There's actually a little bit of overlap with Clement's letter. He says, this is going to help you be more unified. Come together around your bishop. And we can see a little bit of logic to this. It's much simpler, much more efficient to submit to one supreme authority than to submit to several authorities who may not always agree with each other on everything. Actually, I remember talking with a Catholic person a few years ago, and he's like, why don't you guys submit to the Pope? Isn't it a lot simpler, more efficient, unifying to just have one leader? I remember he said that to me. Well, Ignatius is thinking the same thing. Uh, we can prevent factions instead of having multiple leaders, but just having one leader. Now, is unity a bad thing? Is peace a bad thing? Of course not. So you can see there's a good intention here. But, as has already been pointed out, why is it dangerous having just one leader in the church? Nobody can keep him accountable. Nobody ultimately can keep him accountable. So if he falls into sin, into error, there's not much that anybody can do about it. It's going to affect the whole church. And when you think about cults and heresies that have emerged in Christianity across the centuries, how many leaders do they usually have? Just one, or at least one main leader. 
So it's kind of scary, and some of you have experience with this. It's scary to be in a church that's dominated by one leader. Because those who don't agree with that leader, what ends up happening to them? They get driven out. And you can even see that in the letter of 3 John. Now, did the early church fall off a cliff due to the increasing popularity of having one leader due to monopiscopacy? No, thankfully. Didn't fall off a cliff. God provided many servant leaders who, even though this wasn't quite a biblical structure, they served as good bishops in many, many early church congregations. And one of the things that helped this is that becoming a bishop was actually to put a big target on you because the Roman government, when they're looking for people to persecute, they'd usually go after the bishops first. But still, this foundation for increasing bishop authority, it would prove detrimental to the church going forward in history. As both Christianity, the gospel spread, and the practice of monopiscopacy spread with it, cities would start to have multiple churches. And the way they decided to lead these churches is that they divided up the original leadership of the main church. The bishop would lead the main church. And the presbyters would lead the minor churches, the other churches around it. And another shortened name for a presbyter came to be priest. So bishop in the main church, priest in the lesser churches. Does that sound familiar? Also, there began to emerge a hierarchy among the bishops. Certain bishops of important cities either because of the city's size or theological importance, they became leaders with extra influence and authority in the church at large. Poignantly, importantly, five main bishoprics, five cities with their bishops, became the most important in early Christianity. And they formed what has been called the Pentarchy, ruled by five, five super important bishops. And there was one in Jerusalem, one in Antioch, one in Alexandria, one in Constantinople, and one in Rome. So you have this hierarchy of bishops emerge with these five super bishops, also called patriarchs or popes, that have the greatest authority in Christianity. They were the ones in their region. Everybody had to follow what they were saying. Now, in theory, these five patriarchs were all equal. But might there be a leader among the leaders? Might there be one supreme patriarch over the other patriarchs? This was a question that got battened back and forth as the centuries of Christianity went on. And of course, there would be eventually one patriarch who would assert his supremacy above all the others. And of course, that is the patriarchy of the patriarchate of Rome. So inadvertently, Ignatius and others who popularized monopiscopacy, they contributed to the establishment of the papacy. And of course, that has led, that led to so many problems and abuses over the Middle Ages and into the Reformation period. So when we think about Ignatius and his legacy, we do have to, on the one hand, be thankful to the Lord for his testimony of joyful martyrdom for Jesus. On the other hand, we have to say this monopiscopacy thing that was not a good legacy that Ignatius left us. Such is the case with a number of things in early church and other parts of church history. All right, so we have Clement, we have Ignatius. A third apostolic father is Polycarp, Polycarp of Smyrna. Now, you may have heard of him before attending this course. He is not a Pokemon, just want to make that clear. He's instead a very famous martyr. And the account of his martyrdom is one of the earliest genuine martyrologies that we have. He was born around A.D. 60, martyred around A.D. 155. So how old was he when he was martyred? Almost 95. He's an old man. Bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor, apparently also appointed by John the Apostle. He was a disciple of John and, as I mentioned, a friend to Ignatius. We do have a surviving letter written from him, the letter to the Philippians, but the more important document related to Polycarp is the account of his martyrdom. Polycarp was a revered leader, 
beloved Christian, many who witnessed his martyrdom did not want to lose the record of it and its encouragement. According to the notes at the end of the surviving account we have today of Polycarp's martyrdom, which comes from a Christian in Smyrna writing to Christians in Philomelium, which is also in Turkey, the first testimony, the original testimony, was written by Irenaeus. We've mentioned him already in this course. He's going to come later. He was, apparently, Polycarp's disciple, and he wanted to make sure that his, uh, his, discipler, his discipler's martyrdom testimony was not lost. Now, I'll read to you a few excerpts from Polycarp's martyrdom account. Uh, i got about three paragraphs here. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to thy old age, and other similar things, according to their custom, such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, away with the atheists. Remember, that was a term for Christians. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hands towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. What did Polycarp just do? A little bit of irony. He's like, the real atheists, you guys. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, swear and I shall set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, 80 and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? This is Polycarp's famous line, right? And it's intensely reasonable. Why on earth would I do what you're asking me to do? Why would I do wrong to the one who has done me such good? Who is goodness in himself? One more little excerpt here. But again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beast, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment, reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. So what is Polycarp essentially doing here with the proconsul? He's witnessing to him. Even that the proconsul might fear the real fire and be saved. Actually, in another part of the account, he offers to explain Christianity to this proconsul. Anyways, the account goes on, and Polycarp is eventually condemned to burn, but the, burnt, the fire doesn't actually kill him, so then he's stabbed to death. But he remains steadfast, even happy in Christ until the end. And we have the powerful legacy now, even today, of his faithfulness amid martyrdom. All right, a fourth church father, early apostolic father to meet is Papias of Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis is mentioned in the Bible. It's another city in Asia Minor. It's near Colossae in Laodicea, famous for its hot springs. Papias was bishop in Hierapolis and a contemporary of Polycarp. He wrote a five-volume treatise called The Interpretation of the Sayings of the Lord. Unfortunately, that has not survived. We know he wrote it. We don't have it. All we really have from Papias are a few fragments that we get via other writers. Irenaeus mentions a few things that Papias wrote in the second century. And Eusebius, the fourth century church historian, he also mentions a few things that Papias wrote. From these fragments, we learn a few things from Papias. We do learn about the canonicity of Matthew and Mark. Papias claimed that Mark wrote under Peter's direction and that Matthew was the one who originally wrote his gospel, the one that's associated with him. So a little bit of witness about canonicity. Papias is also notable for his premillennialism because when Eusebius writes about him in the fourth century, he criticizes Papias for believing that there would be a literal kingdom of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Eusebius was an amillennialist. And it's actually kind of interesting that, and this is acknowledged by Christians of all stripes, before the year 250, every early church Christian who writes about eschatology presents a premillennial point of view. Remember, premillennial means that Christ will come after the tribulation, and then he will establish a thousand-year reign on the earth. But in the 300s, this changes. 
And most Christians at, at that point afterwards, they are all millennialist. They don't believe there's going to be a literal kingdom of Christ on the earth after the tribulation. Rather, Christ already reigns in a spiritual kingdom, and he will return finally one day. Now, why that change? We'll discuss more why later, but the change has to do with two main factors. Greater popularization of allegorical interpretation and the change of the Christian situation in the Roman Empire. Things got a lot better for Christians. But anyways, in terms of legacy, we can think about Papias in terms of helping us in canonicity and also being an early witness of premillennialism. Of course, that's the view we hold in this church, so that should be encouraging to us. Now, our next four apostolic fathers are anonymous. We only know them by the influential works they wrote. I don't have a ton of time left, so I'm going to move to these kind of quickly. Four works, just to mention to you, we have a, a work called The Shepherd of Hermas, around uh, 150. This book is perhaps the first piece of Christian fiction, very allegorical, also very popular in the early church. It follows the visions, parables, and commands given to Hermas, who is a former slave. He's like the central character of this story. And if you read a translation of this work today, you'll probably think it very weird. But you need to think of it kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. It's, kind of, it's that kind of allegory. And its purpose was to exhort towards repentance and holy living. So we have whoever wrote The Shepherd of Hermas. We have the letter to Diogenes. We don't know who wrote that. It's one of the early apologetic works. Offers a clear explanation of the gospel. Seventh, we have the one I already mentioned, the Epistle of Barnabas. And despite the title, it was almost certainly not written by the Barnabas of the Bible, not Barnabas the Apostle. Some think it may be written by another guy named Barnabas who happened to live in Alexandria, Egypt, but we don't really know. It's still called the Epistle of Barnabas. This document is important legacy-wise because how the writer presents supersessionism and how he supports that with allegorical interpretation. Now, can anybody tell me what supersessionism is? goes by a few other names. Uh, replacement theology, fulfillment theology. It's the idea that the church replaces Israel in God's plans. The new covenant nullifies or spiritually fulfills many of the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. Now, there are many types of supersessionism, but the epistle to Barnabas is an early example of this kind of thinking. It this concept of the church replacing Israel, spiritually fulfilling the promises given to Israel, it would become more and more popular, more and more adopted by early Christians. Even though I would say, we would say as a church, that this is not biblical. The idea became reinforced by certain events that took place in 132 to 136. Israel was obliterated by the Romans in the Bar Kokhba revolt. Simon Bar Kokhba he led a revolt against Rome in Judea. Thousands of Romans were massacred. The Romans responded, how do you think they responded? By brutally putting down the revolt, exterminating or enslaving almost all the Jews that were in Judea and sending them to different corners of the Roman Empire. In essence, this, the nation of Israel, certainly the state of Israel, ceased to exist at that time. Actually, it was probably around that time that that province was renamed, no longer Judea, but Palestine really trying to disassociate that from the Jewish people. Christians are observing this. Like, oh yeah, I think God's done with Israel. <laughs> Look what just happened. Certainly God must have forsaken the covenant with Israel. So, like I said, we see supersessionism, but we also see allegorical interpretation. If you read through the document, you'll see him quote from the Old Testament, and you'll see like, see, look, God said he's done with Israel, but it's only, it only makes sense if you see that they're, they've taken some words out of context and applied an allegorical or spiritual meaning. As I think I may have alluded to in previous classes, Alexandria, Egypt, it becomes like a center of allegorical interpretation. <laughs> We're going to see more teachers come from there who promote this kind of view. And it's going to become popular in various pockets of Christianity, and that's ultimately going to hurt the church. Allegorical interpretation is not a good thing. 
but it is sometimes popular, even today. One more work to introduce you to, and that is the Didache, uh, probably around 100. The Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, it's kind of like an early Christian handbook. It probably was given to new converts or even to baptism candidates. It's probably written in Syria, between 80 and 160. Maybe 100 is most likely. And if you read through this document, it is essentially a summary of the teaching of the New Testament on a very application level, very application-minded level. And I'll read, I think I have time, I'll read you a few excerpts. Okay, maybe not that much time. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The way of life, then, is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another what you would not want done to you. And of these sayings, the teaching is this. Bless those who curse you, and pray for your enemies, and fast for those who persecute you. For what reward is there for loving those who love you? Do not the Gentiles do the same, but love those who hate you, and you shall not have an enemy. That sounds very like what section of teaching in the Bible? Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Now the rest of the document, this is the way it opens, the rest of the document illustrates what these two different ways look like uh, in more specificity. There's a hilarious section of the document I'd love to read to you, but can't. It talks about how you can recognize false teachers. <laughs> and uh, some of the criteria given are, you know, they make a lot of sense. If he teaches something that contradicts the apostles, he's false. If he doesn't do what he teaches, he's false. But I like these other ones, too. If he stays too long at your house, he's false. If he orders a meal in the spirit and eats it, he's false. And if he asks for money, he's false. Which is actually a pretty good list to recognize false teachers today if they come to visit you. <clears throat> but one other notable legacy from this document is what it says regarding baptism. I'll read this excerpt and just briefly comment on it. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water, that is, flowing water. But if you have no living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot do so in cold water, do so in warm. But if you have neither... Pour out water three times upon the head into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the baptized, and whoever else can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Interesting exhortations there about fasting and baptism, but according to this little section, what is the ideal way to get baptized according to this document? In flowing water. And what kind of water, where are you going to find that? Yeah, ocean, river, some big body of water, which implies immersion as the mode of baptism. And you're looking for a local river, looking for the right temperature, but you got kind of like all these ideal ways of being baptized. And then he says, at the last resort, what can you do? You can just pour. Pour water over someone three times. Well, of course, a lot of history has gone by, but... We know that there are sectors of those who call themselves Christians who not just allow for the last option, but that's the standard practice. We don't immerse, we pour or sprinkle. So kind of a strange way, I don't think it necessarily emerged just from this document, but you can see that there was this idea about how to baptize that allowed as a concession in extreme situations for an alternate way to baptize, but... The exception, somehow, maybe just due to convenience, there's a lot of cold places to get baptized in Northern Europe and where Christianity eventually spread. The concession became more and more of a utilized option and then became the rule. A lot of things like this happen from early Christianity. Just like, okay, we'll allow this. This isn't really good, but we'll allow this. Or, all right, you know, we got no other option, so we'll allow this. And then later generations, they just, they just run with it. And they make it something it was never intended to be. But... We do at least see from the Didache, they were exhorted to immersion baptism, but pouring was allowed in some circumstances. And that's it. We've met the main apostolic fathers, faithful men who God raised up in a crucial time when the apostles were patching on, passing on the torch of the gospel to the next generation. They didn't get everything right. And sometimes they made concessions that ended up becoming big errors later. But 
as a whole, these men were faithful. And we benefit from their legacies today. We want to imitate them in their faithfulness. We want to learn from their mistakes. Thank the Lord for these spiritual forebears. Now, where are we going next in our church history series? Well, let me give a few quick announcements. You might know from uh, what I shared in the church prayer sheet that I'm going on vacation. Going on vacation for the next two weeks. So I'm not going to be here next Sunday. But we will have Sunday school because our brother Mark Twomley has agreed, graciously agreed to teach that day. He's going to be teaching church history, but not early church history. He's going to be doing a little preview of something we'll talk about later. He's going to talk about Reformation church history. And I think that will be useful to you, not only to get a preview of what's to come maybe a year from now, but also you can start making connections between things you're seeing in the early church and things you see in the Reformation church. He's going to present about different people, um, some of the, the main people and events of the Reformation. So there will be Sunday school next week. I won't be here, but Mark will be here. So please come back for that. But when I do come back, and I'll be back on the 20th, we're going to learn about church fathers in the second century. Two main groups. They're called the second century apologists and the polemical fathers. We'll learn about what kind of legacy they have left us, how we can be encouraged, but also learn from mistakes. So hope you're back for that as well. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these brothers who came before us. Thank you for raising them up, God. Thank you that you do preserve your word. Lord, help us to be faithful and to pass on a good legacy and to not compromise in something that we think is not a big deal because who knows what the next generation will do with it. But help us to stand on your truth, even to suffer joyfully for you, just as our brethren did in the past. In Jesus' name, amen.